Did you guys enjoy Easter last week? I love the service. Yeah, well, praise God. <laughs> so last week, what we did, just for those of you that didn't know, maybe you're watching um, and you weren't able to participate last week, we did a, a clear outline of the gospel. The gospel are the significant or spiritual significance that's connected to four different, excuse me, five different historical events. The incarnation, which is God becoming man, Jesus' birth, that's the king has arrived, therefore the kingdom is here. Secondly, he went to the cross, that's the atonement. <clears throat> God's wrath against your sin was swallowed up, and at one moment was created, achieved between you and God through the cross. <coughs> Excuse me. Jesus was buried. He died, which means you now die with him. And then Jesus rose, which is the one event upon which all of Christianity hangs. Jesus rose from the dead. Paul said if Jesus didn't arise from the dead, we'd be most miserable of all people. When Jesus rose, you rose in him without your sin. You die with him in your sins and you rise with him without your sins. And then Jesus ascended to heaven. And when he ascended to heaven, he ascended for this reason. So the Holy Spirit will come and seal your heart for the day of redemption. And he himself will be seated on the right hand of the Father, making intercession for you. What does that mean? He makes intercession for you. He is your advocate. He defends you daily. When the accuser comes to accuse you of your life, of any of your wrongdoings, since I know most of you are perfect, but some of us aren't, when there's an imperfection, a sin, then you have a high priest, you have an advocate defending you in the high court of the universe. Isn't that wonderful to know? Now, if you can believe the spiritual significance of those five historical events, you are believing the gospel. Because the gospel, broadly speaking, is Genesis 1 verse 1 all the way through to Revelation chapter 22, the last verse. That is the gospel, broadly speaking. And then, more generally speaking, those five events is the gospel, including the birth of Jesus. That's why I personally like to celebrate Christmas. Because I am celebrating that the king has arrived, the kingdom is here. And then, when Jesus rose from the dead, his kingdom was established. When he rose from the dead, everything he ever claimed, he was vindicated in all he ever said. So if you can believe the, Bible, the, the, the gospel in a more general sense, you're believing the spiritual significance of those five events. But if you believe the gospel in a very narrow sense, you are believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I wanted to make sure we see we have a floodlight view of the gospel, which is the whole entire scriptures cover to cover. A more general view, the five historical events with the spiritual significance connected to them. And then the more narrow view, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But for those that say, well, you know what, I believe that. <clears throat> I definitely believe that. Are you guys cold? No, it's good. Okay. 
Make it a little cooler with one degree. Oh, I'm, I meant the other way. <laughs> I was wondering, Dave, if there's a half degree. Is it such a thing? Okay. Dave, just that side would be fine. Yeah, that's, you don't have to change that. Many people say, well, I do believe those. I absolutely believe them. I absolutely. So, naturally follows from believing the gospel. What the Bible teaches very, it places a great emphasis upon, well, then test yourself to see if, in fact, the faith you have is a saving faith, not just a historical faith, or a faith in, I believe these are the historical events that took place. Are you with me? A historian is not saved, be saved because the historian believes in the historical events that took place. That is having faith in history. That is not saving faith. A philosopher can look at an ontological argument that proves that there is a God, but believing in the ontological argument that there is a God is not a saving faith. That is that you have faith in a scientific fact of there being a God. We have to have a faith in the spiritual significance connected to the historical and the ontological arguments. Now, why I'm saying that is because many people believe that they saved when in fact they're not. And therefore, to preach the gospel is one thing. And to believe in the gospel is one thing, but then to go ahead and, and, and look at the wider perspective of the gospel, that there is a demand to test yourself to see if, in fact, you believe in, a, in, in Christ in a saving manner, okay? How many of you know somebody who believes in Christ, but not in a saving, with a saving faith? Yeah? They believe in Jesus, but not, they don't have faith. They have faith in Christ, but not in a not saving faith. How do you know somebody has a saving faith versus the person that has a faith that is not a saving faith? Because you all just raise your hands. You all know somebody who believes in Jesus but isn't saved. The Bible is very clear. Even the demons believe and they aren't saved. <laughs> there isn't one person on earth that does not believe that there is a God. Everybody believes that there is a God. The Bible says so. He who says that there is no God, he's a liar. He lies to himself and he knows it. But how do I know? How do I know that I'm saved? This is, like, this is like the question of the ages, isn't it? I don't know if there's a more important question than how do I know that I'm saved, that I have saving faith. It seems like our culture has been trained to get angry the moment, the moment you question somebody's personal claim. Well, that's my truth. Have you ever seen people get really hot around the collar when, they, when their claim, their personal claim, is questioned? There's an unspoken rule in society today that says if somebody makes a claim, no matter how outrageous that claim might be, if they make a claim, you under no circumstances are allowed to question that claim, ever. It's true. It's become part of our society. The person claims... To be an abused victim, you better give them the benefit of the doubt. Because if you don't, if 
You better just believe them. If they say, hey, I've been, I'm a victim, you better believe they are. Because if you don't, if you question that they are, they have just become a victim of your abuse. Now a man claims he's in fact a woman. <laughs> you better agree to that. You better use the pronoun of their choice. I have a better one for you. I think that everybody needs to start believing the adjectives of my choice. Everybody say, <laughs> I'm gonna, I have a bunch of adjectives I would like you to use when you address me. A great one. <laughs> the church member claims God spoke to them. The church member claims God spoke to them very clearly about something they need to do. No matter how unscriptural it is, you better step back and not argue with them because who are you to tell me God didn't speak to me? I can hear God. I love this. I know this pastor. <laughs> so he, uh, his major message in life is how to hear the voice of God. So a friend of mine who attended that church for 30 years decided God spoke to him and told him to leave the church. So this friend goes, Pastor, I'm leaving the church. Why are you leaving the church? Well, God spoke to me. Nope, he did not, the pastor says. <laughs> he says, wait a minute. Are you telling me that you've been teaching me for 30 years how to hear God's voice and failed? Are you saying that I now can't hear the voice of God after 30 years I've been taught how to hear the voice of God? Because I'm hearing God telling me right now, you're wrong. <laughs> but, I, but you know how it is. The moment somebody hears from God, you better not argue. God spoke to me. Don't you tell me I don't know how to hear God. Again, you better not question anybody's personal claim they make whether it be their gender, whether it be their experience in life, or whether it be how they hear from God. The person claims they are a believer. I'm a believer. Jesus and I, we're like this. Asking them to examine themselves to see if in fact they're in the faith is one of the most insulting things one could ever request. Have you ever asked somebody a question and they go like, are you saying I'm not a Christian? Are you saying, I'm not saved? Of course I'm saved. I remember, you know, uh, there being a young man who fell into grave sin for many years. When you look at him, you would never have guessed anybody believed that he was in fact saved. Not just by the way he looked, but by the way he acted. So this young man gets into real sexually deviant stuff and into drugs in a deep way and and eventually comes down with with possible cancer and uh, growth and when we were told about it I said okay I will pray for him but I, I, let me let me let me think through this and this is how I think through things sometimes I asked Tina Tina why don't you pray first <laughs> So try to think of how to pray, pray for this as I'm hearing the Lord speak to me. <laughs> Say, speak, Lord. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm, really, I'm really kidding. And so Tina starts praying, and she says, now, obviously, you know, 
This young man did not look and act like a young man in the world. He was beyond that, literally beyond that. Full-on rebellion, open sin, unrepentant, sexually deviant, as I mentioned. So Tina prays this prayer. She says, Lord, as she holds the hands of the family members of this young man, she goes, Lord, oh God, and Tina gets overwhelmed emotionally pretty quick, and she starts crying. No, no. <laughs> Not Tina, no. And, and she goes, God, I, we beg you, God, have mercy upon his soul. Save his life, God, that he will know you intimately and that he'll come to a place of repentance, that, that he will be able to put his faith and trust in you with signs, with evidence that you have saved him so he can have assurance of his salvation. And she's praying for his salvation, right? they concerned because he might have cancer. Well, that right there was the last straw that broke the camel's back. That family goes, how dare you say my family member is not saved? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Last straw that broke the camel's back. Wow. Was I surprised. Was I surprised at that. You see, if my son shows signs of being unregenerate, I would love you. I would love you all the more. Wouldn't you? If I show signs of being unregenerate, and you earnestly intercede for my soul, wouldn't that be you loving on me? If, if I saw that you we're showing signs of being unregenerate. And I trivialize that. And I completely like, well, it's just he's having a bad, he's having a bad 10 years. <laughs> and I just kind of blow it off. Would that be me loving on, on that person? If I tell that person, don't worry about it, you're saved. And they go like, I don't care that I'm saved or not. It's okay, you're saved. <laughs> Am I loving on that person by trying to deceive them? Of course not. Of course not. But, folks, if you, if you are part of the women's, Women of the Word or somebody who reads through the Bible from cover to cover and you understand the wider perspective of the gospel, there's no possible way to miss what we are talking about today. And there's nothing that infuriates people more than this message here today. But I don't have the novelty or the freedom to be faithful and ignore naturally comes after hearing the gospel. So it seems like people would rather hold on to a false hope than hear the truth. If we would walk away from here and we walk around our city and ask people if they believe, most would say they believe that they believe. I believe I believe. I believe I do. The question is, how can we be sure that we believe? There are people Jesus talked about who believe they believe. Yet, even though they believed that they believe, 
they didn't have saving faith. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Prophesying, folks, takes faith. Did we not prophesy in your name? And then they said, and in your name we cast out demons. Casting out demons, folks, takes faith. Watch this. And in your name we performed many miracles. Charlie, performing a miracle takes faith. How many of you would agree with me? It takes faith to perform a miracle. <clears throat> These were people of faith because they did it in Jesus' name. In your name, Jesus, we prophesied. In your name, we cast out devils. They actually did cast out devils. In your name, they weren't lying. We performed miracles. Wow. That took a lot of faith. And then Jesus declares to them in verse 23, I never knew you. Leave me. Leave me. I know you. When Jesus says leave me, <clears throat> think about Peter. Think about Peter. <laughs> the original Pope, right? Think about him. Jesus says to him, Peter, you are now Cephas, rock. Upon this revelation, I will build my church. Upon what just happened to you, I'm building my church. Not long after that, Jesus says, I've got to go. Jesus says, no, you will not. Peter said, no, you'll not. Jesus turned to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. That same guy. Highest point in ministry, lowest point in ministry. <laughs> Upon you, I'll build my church. Get away from me, Satan. Wow. Imagine, you know, am I bipolar? Because I feel like I am. Very happy, very sad. <laughs> that is how Jesus says to these people. Jesus said to them, I never knew you. Leave me. Get behind me. Walk away. Be gone. And then he says, why? He says, because you practice. Can everybody say, please say practice? Practice. Lawlessness. 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 You practice. It's not you broke the law. It's you decided to live in that way. You decided to make it a practice, right? You decided to make it a practice. So what are some of the indicators people use and trust when it comes to confirming their salvation? What do they use to measure themselves and say, oh, good, 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 I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm saved here, I'm saved there, I'm saved everywhere, praise God. So what is the measuring stick? What are the, the indicators they use? Well, people say things like, well, I grew up in church. I grew up in church. That's a measurement. That's an indicator people use to, to measure to see if they're saved. Um, they are a member within a church. Well, I'm a member of the Baptist, the first Baptist. Or what they do is they measure themselves by saying, well, I did pray that prayer one time years ago. Or they think they're saved because the minister told them that they are saved. Or... They think they say because they used to walk with God when they were in their teens. 
and they hold on to a, a doctrine called the security of the, of, of the saints. Now, the Apostle John wrote 1 John with the question in mind, how to know you are saved? How to know you are saved? Dave, can I use your Bible quick? Is this the NASB? And so, thank you, thank you, Dave. So if you want to find 1 John, which I want to encourage every single body to please go and read 1 John. It has five chapters. It is really short. But the book of 1 John was specifically written to answer the question, how do I know I'm saved? All right? And so I just want to read to you a few verses, 1 John 1, 6, 1 John 1. 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in darkness, we lie. If we say we have fellowship with Him yet walk in darkness, we lie. If we say we have fellowship with Him, we are saved, yet we walk in darkness, we lie. 1 John 2, verse 3, says, by this we know that we have come to know Him. This is how we know we have come to know Him. If we keep His commands. That's, that's how we know we have come to know Him. 1 John 2 verse 5 and 6 says, But whoever keeps His word in Him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in Him. Again. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. This is how we know we're in him. We walk as he walked. 1 John 2 verse 9. It doesn't stop this whole chapter. The one who says he's in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who says, I'm in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. 1 John 2.15 says this. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. Here we go. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 1 John 2, 1 John 3, 9 and 10. 1 John 3, verse 9 and 10. No one who is born of God practices sin. Practice. Remember he says, depart from me, I didn't know you, for you practice lawlessness. Here he says, no one who is born of God practices sin. It doesn't say you are without sin. It says you practice it. Mm. Verse 9. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him. God's seed abides in that person. And he cannot sin in the means of, in the way of practicing it because he is born of God. Because he is born of God. Cannot continue. How many of you have become very sensitive towards the sin in your life? You don't have to raise your hands. But if you go like, you know, my sin, my sin bothers me. My sin bothers me. This week? Thank you, brother. <coughs> You know, I, I got more angry than I should have. I responded in a way I should not have. 
And then I go to my family members, sit them down, tell them, please forgive me. Why? Because remember that my sin is not against my son or my wife or my daughter alone. My sin is against God who told me how to treat them. And when I don't treat them that way, I sin against God. And I have to go and apologize, repent, because I've sinned against God. I have to change, right? My sin bothers me quickly. How many of you can say uh, your sin bothers you quicker and more severely than it used to do in the past, right? Okay, so your conscience has become alive. Your conscience has become alive. Now, I want to encourage you. Don't sear your conscience. Don't hurt your conscience by not repenting when you know you have been disrespectful when you shouldn't have been disrespectful. You should never be disrespectful. When you have mistreated somebody, when you have said things you shouldn't have, be quick to repent. You, you have to guard your heart. Guard your conscience. Keep it soft because this is a sanctification process. You might say, well, I'm not going to humble myself or humiliate myself in front of my family by repenting. If you're a parent, let me ask you, how else are you going to teach your kids to walk in repentance? How else would they know how it, how it looks? I hope my family, my son and my daughter learns how, how to repent quickly and sincerely <laughs> with becoming very intentional of not doing it again, right? So I'm going to sin again. I know it because I'm, a, you know, I'm not a perfect person. So you have to always be ready to repent, especially if you've been on Facebook, right? <laughs> it's like, how do you repent when you've said something on Facebook you shouldn't have? You go delete it, all right? That's one way of repenting. The Apostle John, therefore, as you can see, 1 John, all the way through, it's not going to take you long to read it, but it's very clear on telling you, okay, if this is, this is how you know you believe, and he gives the answer. This is how you know you're in the faith, and he gives the answer. This is how you know you're in God, and he gives the answer. Very clear. Now, the apostle Paul addressed this issue um, where he encouraged people to make sure they are saved. He encouraged people to make sure they are saved. Now, again, people are allergic to this question, are you truly saved? Of course I'm saved. Well, that's the first red flag, right? Somebody comes and asks me, are you truly saved? I'd like to know what they have to say after that. Because I, I want to know that I'm truly saved. And throughout the New Testament, we are encouraged to ask each other that question, especially if you are the shepherd of the flock, right? And here the Apostle Paul is doing exactly that. He's shepherding the flock at Corinth, and he's very concerned for them because he knows not everybody in that church of, at Corinth is saved. He was dealing with this church who had so many problems. Now, let me list you a few problems existing that existed in the church at Corinth, okay, that Paul was writing 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians 2. First, there were many arguments and divisions within the church because some saw themselves as spiritually superior to others, and they started... They started uh, creating categories within the church. Well, we are the spiritual ones, therefore you're always wrong, we're always right, kind of thing. Secondly, there, there, there was gross immorality, sexual immorality amongst church members. Thirdly, Christians were suing 
Christians, brothers were taking other brothers to court. Then there were many husbands divorcing their wives in this church. This church was full of problems. Then, to top it all off, there, was, there were these people who became so prideful. These people who were in their sin became so prideful, they started criticizing their leader, Paul. Not only did they start criticizing him, they started saying, well, you know, we don't think he's a true apostle. So they questioned his apostleship. And upon this, Paul kind of said, okay, well, you know, there's one way to change this, and that is to ask the actual question. So Paul turned the, the criticism on him around by asking them to do this. Are you ready? He asked them in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he said, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith or not. Examine yourselves whether you are in the faith or not. Forget about the fact that I'm an apostle. Why don't you see if you have saving faith? Because Bon Jovi has faith. George Michael has faith. And you know what? I hope his faith worked for him. He's no longer around. The question is, do you have saving faith? The demons have faith. Do you have saving faith? This is the question. And this is what Paul is asking them. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Then he says, test yourselves. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? Test yourselves. The question is, how do I test myself? How many of you are interested in knowing how to test yourself to see whether you're in the faith or not? Yeah? Well, pastor, I know that I know that I know that I know. In my heart, I know that I know that I know I'm saved. But doesn't the Bible say that your heart, above all, is deceitful? Most deceitful. There's nothing more deceiving than your own heart. You're going you're gonna to believe that? When your heart tells you, you're saved, don't worry about it. They're like, who's speaking right now? How do I know that's God? Well, nowhere in scriptures are people encouraged to check their hearts to see if they're saved. That is, in fact, not uh, a way to measure your salvation. But we have heard that said too many times from the pulpit. Do you know that you know that you know that you know you're right with God? I know that I know that I know I'm right with God. Are you sure you know that you know that you know that you're right with God? Because the people in Matthew that Jesus talked to knew that they knew that they knew that they knew that they were right. Only when they came to, to face off with Jesus did he say, depart from me. But wait a minute. We cast out devils in your name. Go away. Wait a minute. We prophesied some beautiful things to people in your name. Go away. How about those miracles, Jesus, that we go away? They were shocked and surprised. Because they knew that they knew that they knew that they knew they were saved. The power gifts proved it. Nope, that's not a measurement. The power gifts not a measurement of your salvation. Neither is the confirmation in your heart. That's not what the Bible teaches. 
So Paul said, test yourself. We want to know how to do that. In 2 Peter 1 verse 10, we see again a different book. Therefore, brothers, Peter says, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. How many of you believe God called you unto salvation? Every hand should go up. How many of you believe that you have been elected by God unto salvation? Every hand should go up. Now he says, now that you believe you are called, and you believe that you're elected, and you believe that you've been justified, and you believe that you've been saved, now make that calling and election sure. Be sure of that. Be confident of that. There was Jacques last week. He taught on the gospel. I believe, therefore, I'm saved. I know. That's what I'm saying now. Make sure of that, he says. But he doesn't just say make sure of it. He says, be even more diligent. Diligent. Can everybody please say diligent? In other words, become diligent in making sure you are called. Become diligent in making sure that you are part of the elect. So how can we be diligent to make sure we are part of the elect? What are the biblical indicators we ought to look at in order to measure and see, okay, listen, I've got to diligently look and to, to myself, not to the person next to me, not to the Apostle Paul, whether he's right or wrong, because we're really good at that. The question is, can I, can I find the biblical indicators to show whether I'm saved or not? I want to share with you a few thoughts. I've already read to you through some of them in 1 John, but 1 John is so packed with them. We're going to put 1 John away. We're going to look at many other verses so that you don't just disqualify one book in order to disqualify the entire teaching. It's all over the place. So here are a few thoughts. Make your call and election sure by, number one, measuring your growing fruits. Measuring your growing fruits. How many of you like avocados? Yeah. Have you noticed the problem with avocados? It's like, it's almost like the, um, it's almost like spring in Chicago. <laughs> you have like a half day of spring, have you realized? It's like, wow, it snowed just a few days ago, and, and now it's in the 80s almost, yeah? Okay, so it's, where did spring go? We jump right out of snow into hot summer. And it's almost like avocados. You've got to stand in front of that box of avocados, and then, and then they're too hard, too hard, too hard. And then, oh, then are they too soft? You know, they just go bad so quick, don't they? You literally have a half a day to enjoy that avocado before. <laughs> so that's how, when I thought about fruits, I thought, well, I mean, here's an avocado. All I know is that it is constantly moving from being a brand new little avocado to being good enough for trash only. You know, it, it, it just grows so quickly, even if it's not hanging on the stem. But the thing that I'm trying to show you is that fruits are always growing. And my fruit is the evidence that I'm saved, but not my fruit. My growing fruit is evidence that I'm saved. Not my dead fruits. Not the fruits that aren't going anywhere. My growing fruits. We are not saved by our fruits, but unto fruitfulness. We are not saved by our fruits. So please, 
Uh, I hope we've gotten past this whole, oh, he's legalistic thing. Especially when you heard Jesus say, depart from me, for you practice lawlessness. <laughs> you know, oh, he's so under the law. No, I'm not. I'm, sa- I'm saying to you that you are not saved by your fruits, but you are saved, or your fruits. Let me say, you're not saved by your fruits, you are saved unto fruitfulness. Ephesians 2.8 says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this faith is not your own. It is a gift from God, not a result of your works, so that no one may boast. Can you see? Saved with out works. Then it carries on, same thought, for we are His workmanship created in Jesus for good works, saved without works by the grace of God for the purpose of good works. Can you see that? So, my salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, has an end goal, and that is that I will now, as a new creature, a new creation, become fruitful unto the kingdom of God. Saved without works for the purpose of fruitfulness. Matthew seven sixteen through 20 says, You will know them by their fruits. Jesus speaking. How do I know? People around me are saved. You know them by their fruits. Contrary to our experience, when we pray for somebody whose fruits prove, who's, who, who are bearing thorns, obviously not a grape, you know, grapevine. Grapevines don't produce thorns. And when you look, you go like, well, you know, God, I just really pray your mercy upon this person. Draw him into your body. Drag him. Because unless the Father drags you, you will not come to Christ. You know that somebody, somebody said, well, and this is not part of the message, but Jesus said, no man can come unto me. There's an inability there. No man can come unto me, inability, unless the Father draws him to me. Somebody goes, well, that's, that's like, me looking into Tina's eyes and she's wooing me to her. She's just loving me into, she's causing me to love her, <laughs> you know, by wooing me and wooing me. And we don't really have that romance thing going in, in that verse. That draw, the word draw, no man can come unto me unless the Father draws him, is not a wooing, is not a romantic drawing, is a drawing out of the fire kind of thing. The word draw there is the same word used for when they, when they drew the water out of a well. You don't say to the water, come unto me, I woo you, I woo you up. I woo. That's not a wooing. It's a dragging, forceful pulling out of the well. And no man can come to Christ unless the Father actually dragged them out into Christ, out of the world, out of sin, out of death, into life. Lazarus, come forth if you really want to. That's not what happened. And so, when you see somebody not bearing fruits, you have to pray for, the, for God's mercy upon them that He will draw them into Christ. That would be the faithful thing to do. He says in Matthew 7, 16, you know them by their fruits. 
Grapes are not gathered from the thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Can you, how clear could this be? You do not get grapes off of a thorn bush. In other words, if, if it's only got thorns and no grapes, it's not, it's not a vine. It's not part of the vine. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. You know that the tree is good because the fruit is good. You know the tree is bad because the fruit is bad. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. So, in these thoughts I want to share, you, share with you this morning, the first is you have to ask yourself a question. Can people around me see the fruits of the Spirit in my life increasing in a growing manner? Am I growing in fruits? Number two, making your call and election sure by measuring your ongoing faith. Your ongoing faith. True faith does not lack true works. True faith does not lack true works. James chapter 2, 14 says through 23, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? In other words, is that a saving faith when it's a faith without evidence of fruits? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be, warned and, uh, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. If somebody's going without a blanket in the middle of the cold, and you go like, be warm, brother. <laughs> How good is your wish? I pray, Father, he be warm. How good is that if you don't give him a blanket? That's what he's saying. He says, and for those who say, well, I have faith, except for you can't see it anywhere in my life. He says, what good is that? He says, your faith is dead. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe. But they don't have saving faith. Jesus didn't die for a demon. He didn't die for angels. He died for you. Saving faith is not the same as general faith, historical faith, scientific faith. Verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along, uh, along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. In other words, now God says, Abraham, I know you believe in me. Now I know you believe in me. When he took that knife and he was ready to plunge it into Isaac's chest, God goes, stop, there's a ram, type of Christ. He provides for you a lamb in your stead. When it says Jehovah Jireh, it doesn't mean he's going to provide for you 
a brand new vehicle. It says He's going to provide for you the lamb necessary to be your substitute. And when Abraham took that knife and he was ready to plunge it through Isaac's chest, God said, stop now. I know you believe you have saving faith. I don't want to confuse you in this, but think about how people in the Old Testament got saved. The exact same way people in the New Testament get saved. People in the New Testament, they get saved by putting their faith in Jesus Christ who died for them 2,000 years ago in the past. They put their faith in that act. People in the Old Testament, like Abraham, put his faith in, what, in the coming Messiah who will perform that act. They got saved the exact same way. The fact that he was going to offer up his only son, Isaac, he knew. He knew this is what God was going to do in the future, and he was a type and a shadow of it. And Because he believed, he knew God was going to raise his son from the dead. If Isaac was going to die, he knew he was going to be raised from the dead. Why? Because he told the servants just before that, the boy and I will go up to worship and we will be back. He believed that they would be back. He had faith, and God said, stop, now I know you believe, because you acted upon what you said you believed. You acted upon what you said you believed, Abraham. And this is what he's speaking about here. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and, and faith was completed by his works. Faith proved, I mean, his works proved that he had faith. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. So here James attacks all forms of antinomianism. Antinomianism. Antinomianism is something that anti is against. Nomianism is law. Anti-God's law. I was on Facebook with somebody yesterday. And I basically said that, I don't want to bring up the issue, but I basically said, okay, well, there's a problem if you say that Christians stop being so prideful over what you believe you've achieved. I'm like, this is proof of the fact that you don't understand what Christianity is all about. We aren't prideful over what we think we achieved. We are humbled by what we know Christ achieved for us. For by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scriptures alone, for God's glory alone, none of ours. For by grace alone, not by grace and the sacraments. For by faith alone, not by faith and works. For by Christ alone, not Christ and other mediators, including Mary and the saints. By Scripture alone, not by Scriptures and extra books. For the glory of God alone, not for the glory of anybody else, including Rome. And I said, so we, we for one, take zero glory for ourselves. Zero. We don't pride ourselves in anything. But last time I checked, the LGBT did have a little bit of a pride problem. And so the lady comes back and she goes, well, you know what? That is so, so, so Old Testament of you. Like, wait a minute. <laughs> How is that Old Testament of me? You see, antinomianism says, 
If ever there is a statement that you have to obey Christ or anybody, that's Old Testament, you're legalistic, it's don't ever, don't ever have to listen to anything that sounds like it's law. Well, that's antinomianism. That's what the hyper-grace movement got into trouble over, right? Antinomianism. And here, James is actually fighting that ancient heresy that still exists today, antinomianism, and says, you are saved and you don't have to ever do anything. Well, that's true. If you're saved, you're not saved because you did anything, but if you're saved, it will be evident in what you do that you are. Right? I don't do things in order to love Tina. I do things because I love Tina. Right? If you love somebody, it's evidence in how you treat them, how you live. You don't treat them and live in a certain way in order to love them. No, you do it because you love them. And in the same way, we live in a certain way because we love God. Not in order to love God. We live in a certain way because we are saved and loved by God. Not in order to be saved and loved by God. So here James attacks all forms of antinomianism. People who look to Jesus as their Savior and they deny Him as Lord over their lives. Colossians 1.21 says, Once you were separated from God, the evil things you did showed your hostile attitude. But now, Christ has brought you back to God by dying in His physical body. He did this so that you could come into God's presence without sin, fault, or blame. Verse 23, This is on the condition that you continue in the faith. He says, okay, you got faith, but your faith has a condition, and it's that it continues. Because the thing that God started, He will finish. If He started faith, He is the author and the finisher of your faith. And if your faith doesn't continue, He was not the author of it. Can you see that? Because He doesn't start something that He won't also finish in you. The work that He has started in you, He will finish in you. He is the author and the finisher of your faith. And if your faith doesn't finish, it was because He didn't start it. Anybody who deconstructs their faith proves that they had faith that wasn't saving faith, that was not a gift from God. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this faith is a gift from God. That faith there always continues. That is the proof of the fact that you have saving faith. That is proof of the fact that you have true faith. It doesn't stop. Now, you may have some kind of personal breakdown. You may have some kind of relational breakdown. You may go through a really hard time. But let me just tell you, the person who has true faith, when they go through a relational breakdown, it is, it is amplified because they don't want to live in sin before God. They can't, they str it's the worst thing for a Christian to fall into sin. To slide into sin. You don't fall into it. You, you incrementally slide into it. It's the worst thing because First John, he who is of God, he who is in the light, cannot sin. I cannot. I cannot continue. I cannot do this. I have to stop. You see, so you go, Jacques, why are you making such a big deal about sin? Well, the Bible, very clear. Man's, man's single greatest problem is sin. And John the Baptist made it very clear that Jesus came for that single greatest problem. The, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away what? The sin of the world. 
Here comes Jesus. What did he come to do? Take away the sin of the world. Yet we have, pre, we have churches built around doctrine, which is teaching, that is totally void of sin. That is a church void of the purpose of Christ, the purpose of the cross. Does it make sense? Are you all still with me this morning? So he says in verse 23 of Colossians 1, this is on the condition. In other words, you have saving faith on the condition that your faith actually continues. So you have to ask yourself in this point, does my faith prove to be real by the way I live? Does my, fa- is my, fa- does my faith prove that it's real over the fact that it's continual? It continues. I may have a breakdown. I may fall down seven times, but I get back up. I get back up. I get back up. Number three, make your call and election sure by measuring your new desires. I love this. The Bible starts in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 with a creation. The Bible ends in Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22 with a new creation. Who is the new creation? You, the regenerate, is the new creation who has a brand new heart. And the Bible tells us in the prophets that God will cause us to now love Him. He will give us a heart that loves Him. The first sign that somebody is in fact born again, like the Apostle Paul, is that he, he first hated God. He got born again, and what he used to hate, he now absolutely loves. And what he used to love, he now absolutely hates. The change in loves is the proof of the fact that something's happened to you. You are no longer an old creation. You are now a new creation. It's the fact that you have brand new desires, brand new loves. Let me just tell you something. How do you measure somebody's loves? Easy. Easy. Did their priority list in life change? You always prioritize what you love. Always. Everybody prioritizes what they love the most. I don't love my job, but I, but I go, I'm committed. Well, because you love the check you get, <laughs> right? You love the freedom it gives, right? You love the food it provides. Yes, you have a priority to go to work in the morning because of all the things you love. And so, Make sure you call an election is sure that you are part of the elect by measuring what is it that I do love? How do I measure what I love? By looking at what I prioritize. So ask yourself in this point, does my heart desire to be right with God? Does my heart desire to know God? Does my heart desire to be, to be in fellowship with God? Number four, make your call and election sure by measuring your ongoing sanctification. I've shared this so many times, but for those of you who might be new to it, the Bible does speak about your salvation in three tenses. Past tense, you were saved. You were saved. 2 Timothy 1.9. It speaks about your salvation in the present tense. You are being saved. 1 Corinthians 1.18. It speaks about your salvation in the future tense. Romans 5, 9, and 10. So you were saved, another term for that is you were justified. You are being saved in the present tense, another word for that is sanctification, sanctified. You, are, you will be saved in the future, another word for that is glorification, glorified. 
you are justified, you are being sanctified, you will be glorified. The only way to, real, to know that you were saved 2,000 years ago is that you are being saved today. The only, only, only proof you have that you will be saved in the future is that you are being saved. Sanctification is what gives you assurance, assurance of the fact that you were saved, you will be saved. Jesus said it is finished on your behalf and He will raise you from the dead. You will be glorified. Why? Because you are being sanctified. So in this, in this one right here, which you have to ask yourself, am I more sensitive about my sin today? Or am I less concerned about my sin today? Sanctification is measured by your attitude towards sin. Finally, number five, make your call and election sure. How? By measuring your ongoing repentance. This is so important. You know, when I look at some... <clears throat> Let me continue. Measuring your ongoing repentance. You see, true converts will not find their assurance in denominational membership or in, past, in a past act of devotion. You know, when, when people used to write the date in their Bible as to, you know, 1974 is when I gave my life to the Lord under that tree, when that guy prayed for me after my girlfriend broke up with me. <laughs> I was broken. I was broken, and God... Blesses the brokenhearted. So, no, salvation, uh, if you are not saved walking with God today, you didn't walk with Him then. That's, that's the whole point that I just shared with you about your, your salvation being in three tenses. If you are not being saved today, you weren't saved back then, no matter how broken you were or no matter how emotional you were or no, how, no matter how many times you received a certificate for baptism and for membership and for... No matter how many times the pastor told you that you were saved, it didn't, doesn't matter. If you're not being sanctified today, if today your attitude towards sin isn't increasingly sensitive, um, then there is a red flag and you have to measure yourself. Paul said, examine yourself, test yourself, deceive you in the faith. Peter says, now make sure your calling and your election is sure. Check it out. Measure yourself. Look to yourself. Deceive you in the faith. Because if you're not, do something about it. Repent. Run to God. Beg Him for mercy. Measuring your ongoing repentance. The final one. Matthew 3, 7 and 8 says, But when He saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for, him, for baptism, this is the John the Baptist, not the Apostle John, but John the Baptist, when He saw that the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to get baptized, he said to them, you offspring of snakes, vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who warned you about coming judgment to the point where now suddenly you want to get baptized? You're coming for the wrong reasons. He says, therefore, before you come, because you are worshiping God, getting baptized. Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. Don't just say, I repent. I want to see. 
I don't see the evidence of your repentance. Measuring your ongoing repentance. Produce fruit. Fruit is ever-growing that is consistent with the repentance you live in. Philippians 2.12 says, So then, my, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out, work out. In other words, if it's in, work it out. Let's see it on the outside, not just on the inside. Work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. And here you ask yourself, is God finishing in you the work you claim that He started? Is God currently finishing in you the work you claim He started in you? Ask yourself that question. So today, folks, I do believe that we need to take what the Scriptures say and not just look at a sermon and say, well, you know what, that was a little, that was a little different, and you know what, let's just move on. Um, there's nothing more important for you, family, to be honest with self. And how can you become honest with self? Go to your point of reference. What is your point of reference? Your favorite preacher? No. What you were always taught? No. Your point of reference is Scripture. I just would love to know how anybody would interpret all the Scriptures, including all the ones I read to you out of 1 John. How would anybody, you know, interpret all those Scriptures? Because you don't hear them pretty often. You don't hear them often, do you? About testing yourself, examining yourself, uh, make sure that your election is sure, you know, check into it and see if you're in fact real <laughs> Christian. And you don't really hear that a lot. What you do hear is, let's affirm that we are fine. Let's keep on affirming that we are fine. Let's affirm that we are fine. And it does not say to do that. It gives indicators on how to measure yourself and test yourself because it commanded you to do so. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your...